Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? It's going well. Had a great time this week on the campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary at the For the Church Conference. I uh, got yeah. to see some of my favorites preach. I, I'm a I'm a junkie for Jared Wilson's preaching and uh, got to hang out with him a little bit this week and hear him preach and just, I, I can't get enough of that. So that was my week. I enjoyed it. And I had a lot of burnt ends in Kansas City. Oh, nice. I'm convinced that's the best barbecue cut right there. Okay. Good to know. Well, it's conference week. Uh, on seminary campuses, because we're getting geared up for the nine marks at Southeastern Conference. We are on mark number nine, uh, which is leadership. But the fun thing is, um, one of the speakers at that is H.B. Uh, Charles, who I think was at the Midwestern for the church conference earlier this week. He so was. he's just making the round. He was. I, it's the first time I've ever you know, sat in the room and listened to H.B. preach and thoroughly enjoyed it. I really yeah. enjoyed having H.B. there. Yep, we are we are looking forward to having him uh, here, and uh, I saw some great uh, chatter on social media about the um, for the church conference. I I wish I could have caught more of the live stream. It was just one of those uh, crazy days between things at the office and picking up kids and things like that. But um, maybe I can go back and catch some of the videos. Yeah, they were fantastic. Uh, not a dud in the bunch. Uh, just top to bottom. A solid conference. Congratulations, Jason Allen, Charles Smith, the entire gang at Midwestern. You guys put on a great show. But Amy, I'm excited about this week's episode because we have a fantastic interview from Dr. Albert Moeller, uh, the president at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, who is uh, actually happens to be our sponsor uh, this week yes. for the episode. This week's episode, once again, is sponsored by the Billy Graham School of Missions, Evangelism, and Ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you are preparing to plant or revitalize churches in North America or to take the gospel to places where Christ is not yet known, the Billy Graham School is committed to training the next generation of Great Commission leaders. Learn more about the Billy Graham School's MDiv, DMIN, or other degree programs by visiting sbts.edu slash bgs. Again, that is sbts.edu slash bgs. So we're going to jump into the interview first this week. Uh, just a fascinating conversation about the Peace Committee, which uh, 30 years ago, uh, this past June, brought their report. They were commissioned in 1985 at the Dallas SBC and brought the report in 1987 at the St. Louis annual meeting. And uh, Dr. Moeller and I had a chance to sit down uh, a couple weeks ago at the executive committee meeting. He was so gracious with his time. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Dr. Moeller, for the uh, the hour or so that you gave me. Uh, just to sit down and talk. We got about 20 minutes of uh, interview here, and we just chatted offline as well about just all kind of stuff. It was just a phenomenal conversation. So here is our interview about the Peace Committee, the conservative resurgence, and all things uh, that went on back then from Dr. Moeller. Joining us today on SBC This Week is Dr. R. Albert Moeller, Jr. Uh, he serves as the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, the largest seminary in the SBC and one of the largest in the world. He's been featured in Time Magazine, Christianity Today, World Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN, Fox News, and now SBC This Week. Dr. Moeller, thanks for joining us. Jonathan, it's great to be with you. We're going to talk about the Peace Committee. This is the 30th anniversary uh, earlier this year of the Peace Committee, formed in 1985 in Dallas, uh, made a report in 1987 in St. Louis, 
Uh, you were at Southern at that time. Uh, and not on the peace committee, uh, one of the few committees you've not served on in your time as, uh, as a denominational servant. But you told Baptist Press in April 1998 that the peace committee and its work was one of the most significant chapters in SBC life. Explain to our listeners how the outcome of the peace committee process shaped the SBC over the past 30 years. Yeah, let me go back to when the uh, peace committee began. You mentioned it really emerged in 1985. That was the biggest meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention ever and uh, had a great deal to do with the fact that uh, it was not at all clear which direction the Southern Baptist Convention was going to go. The elections in those years, the pivotal uh, mid-years of the 1980s, uh, were still a time in which uh, either the moderates or the conservatives could have won long-term or some mixture. And the Peace Committee was, after that extremely close election uh, between Winfred Moore and Charles Stanley, and the idea was that uh, there would be a typically Baptist way of dealing with a huge problem, which is to form some kind of committee. It buys time in one sense. It also formalizes deliberations. And uh, it, it's as it is in the government or in any other uh, organization, it's a way of trying to harmonize if some harmonization is possible. And what's really interesting is that when that committee was announced, there was an understanding that there might be some harmonization possible. Uh, the history of the Peace Committee was of that committee, I believe, separating into three different groups. Not two, but three. And uh, with uh, the middle group that went into the process not committed to uh, to either side, uh, losing all, uh, well, I will say this, uh, becoming convinced that harmonization was not possible. When we look back 30 years later on the Peace Committee, was it a success or was it a failure? Well, organizationally, it was, it was a failure, clearly, because the hopes invested in the Peace Committee in 1985 on the part of the convention, uh, at least officially, it was an attempt to bring about peace uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. It didn't do that. But, you know, this is one of those situations in which failure uh, can be more helpful than success, because... Had, in an artificial way, the Peace Committee brought about an artificial peace, it wouldn't have lasted. It wouldn't have been honest. It wouldn't have served our church as well. It would have just delayed the inevitable. So in that sense, the the failure, I mean, by the time you get to just two or three years outside from the Peace Committee, no one's even making reference to its recommendations anymore. And it's because 1987, moderates are still running a candidate against a conservative candidate to be president of the SBC, that continued through 1990. So in that sense, it was, it, it, I look at it kind of like League of Nations after World War I. You can understand it was kind of a noble effort, but in an historical perspective, you can see it never could have worked. Um, and uh, that's kind of the way it is with the Peace Committee. But I'm thankful nonetheless, because even the failure of the Peace Committee uh, served a purpose to help clarify these issues. And over the long run, that may be its most valuable service. Would it be fair to say the Glorietta Statement was the most significant result of the Peace Committee process? No, I don't think so. It's, the most, it's certainly the most important document other yeah. than the report of the committee itself. And the committee's report couldn't have happened without the Glorietta Statement. But uh, I think the most important legacy of the Peace Committee is the fact that in its final analysis, it determined that the causes of the controversy were theological. Uh, in retrospect, that is the biggest single, uh, I think, decisive issue uh, of the entire process of the Peace Committee, because the argument was being made by many, it's not theological. 
And to their credit, uh, not only some of the very clearly conservative leaders, but in the end, some of the very clearly uh, moderate leaders, as they uh, called themselves, I'll use the language they called themselves, uh, also made very clear uh, it is a theological issue. Now, you, you mentioned those moderate leaders, Cecil Sherman, one of those. Uh, you written, you've written about him to say that he, you learned a great deal from him. His honesty revealed the basic theological issues at stake. You, his rejection of biblical inerrancy caused you to think more deeply about the inspiration and authority of the Bible. His candid and shocking words helped you to understand what was at stake. How did his resignation from the Peace Committee shape the report of the Peace Committee and the resulting fallout in the denomination? If you'll allow me, let me put some flesh on those bones. Uh, during the time of the 1980s, I was not just at Southern. I was assistant mm-hmm. to the president. The president was Dr. Roy Honeycutt, a uh, very clearly identified moderate leader. And uh, he combined in many ways kind of the quintessence of uh, Southern Baptist moderate leadership at the time, a man himself of incredible graciousness, uh, a, a Southern gentleman, uh, a, a man who never would have acted in a way he felt was uh, in any way lacking in integrity, and a man who was really even more theologically liberal than he recognized, because like so many of those moderate leaders, they really didn't even know the entire world of conservative scholarship. They, they, they really didn't even realize, again, how liberal they were. But uh, Cecil Sherman made repeated visits to Southern Seminary during those years, and I had the opportunity to, to get to know him. And uh, he, here's the difference between Cecil Sherman and other moderate leaders. Other moderate leaders would come in and would do just about anything to avoid talking about theology, except for the fact that they opposed the conservative resurgence and they rejected biblical inerrancy as a mandate. They didn't always reject biblical inerrancy in terms of their own beliefs. Sometimes they, they wouldn't get that specific. Cecil Sherman walked in the room and said, biblical inerrancy is a false claim about Scripture. It, it does not correspond to Scripture. Uh, he held to a very liberal understanding of Scripture, and when I speak of his integrity, he was quite clear about that. I, I do not believe Cecil Sherman was capable of dissembling. Uh, when I was later editor of the Christian Index— and uh, did an incredible amount of work with the secular media, especially on background, I'd have the reporters the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, major newspapers and uh, magazines like Newsweek and Time, they call me and say, uh, to whom should I speak about this? And I would always say, you should speak to Adrian Rogers and Cecil Sherman, because those two men are incapable of, uh, uh, of failing to tell you what they think. And both of them will be equally candid and honest, and you'll, you'll, you'll understand the two polarities in the SBC uh, if you interview those, those two men. Now, his resignation from the Peace Committee, what part did that play in the report? Well, I was in the room when that happened, in terms of the press room uh, when that happened, uh, and uh, where Cecil walked in, and uh, he did not merely resign. He was furious. He was boiling over Texas furious. And uh, he uh, he believed that the moderates had sold the store, so to speak, and had sold out their own constituency uh, with the Peace Committee report, which he said is a recipe for the conservative resurgence to to be victorious in every single SPC entity. It's just a matter of time, and uh, and furthermore, uh, he believed the Glorietta statement was the worst possible moment. Because you remember, Cecil didn't make it to the end no, when the re- report was given. Of uh, instead, Peter James Flaming had his position at that point. So his walkout uh, and his statements to the press came in the context of responding to the Glorietta Statement. You asked me about that. I'm happy to return to it. The Glorietta Statement is a fascinating story unto itself. 
Uh, the seminary presidents were called upon to give a response to the peace committee. And uh, so they gathered together. They had actually sought input, we now know, from uh, various people. Uh, they met together secretly with uh, W.A. Criswell. Uh, they met with, with others. They met with their own uh, constituencies, and, uh, and they came together. They were determined to make a joint statement. So it's not the case that the seminary presidents just decided to make a statement. They were required to make a statement of one form or another uh, to the Peace Committee as the Peace Committee was entering what I would call the final phase of its report when it was actually deciding what its recommendations and, and report would be. So by that time, conversations had already taken place between the Peace Committee officially and all six of the seminaries on the issues. And the seminaries were not in the same place, uh, 1985 to 1987, in answering a lot of these questions, nor were they under equal suspicion, uh, as was clear in the report of the Peace Committee as it, as it came out. What surprised everyone was that the Glorietta Statement was released and that it made such an incredibly strong statement of biblical inspiration and biblical authority, saying that the Bible is without error in every sphere of reality. And uh, so that led to immediate questions. I was at Southern, and, and I was in the room when Dr. Honeycutt came back and tried to explain the Glorietta Statement to Southern's faculty. I'm sure uh, that didn't go over it was, too well. It, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Honestly, it, it, in retrospect, it was one of the most important uh, occurrences I witnessed because it clarified the issues to me. So in that meeting, I saw faculty members at Southern in a whole new light. I'd known them in the classroom. I'd even known them in a doctoral seminar. But to see them in that context in which they were taking that statement, the Glorietta Statement about Scripture— and making very clear how much they disagreed with it, uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. And, and, of course, it was eye-opening to Cecil Sherman, who believed that the seminary presidents had committed treachery. Yeah, and well, and it's good to remember that at this time we were under the BFM 1963, right. and about a decade later you served on the committee to uh, create the BFM 2000. So how did the issues raised by the Peace Committee and the Glorietta Statement about Article One? affect changes in that that new confessional statement in 2000? Well, even before you get to the Peace Committee process formally, the 63 statement had created havoc ever since 1963. The statement and the article in Scripture in which it said uh, Jesus Christ is the criterion by which the Scripture is to be interpreted, uh, that was being used in a very neo-Orthodox way first to create a Christological uh, claim uh, in which one could deny historical and, and other claims made in Scripture, uh, claiming instead that, uh, that one could abstract a Christ from the Gospels or from selected texts that would nullify other biblical texts. Uh, in, in particular, in the classroom at Southern Seminary, it was routine to have that article, the Baptist Faith and Message, used to invalidate uh, Paul. By the way, during that time, for instance, no one would have argued that in Romans 1, Paul was not speaking of homosexuality, period. Uh, so in other words, at that time, there was no claim that there was any lack of understanding of Paul. It was just the claim that uh, if Jesus Christ is the criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted, Jesus didn't speak to X or Y, and therefore 
uh, it isn't all that important. So that was the background of coming into this, because the Baptist Faith and Message 1963, which came out of the, the controversy uh, over Ralph Elliott, was intended to make a clear statement of Scripture, uh, actually uh, presented to Southern Baptists the opportunity, which they took, which was to affirm a neo-Orthodox understanding of Scripture. So the Peace Committee isolated specific examples. So in the Peace Committee report, you had findings and you had recommendations. And uh, in the findings were specific cases in which it was clear that this was in the view of the, and, and they would often state it, in, in the view of the majority of the Peace Committee or in the view of a significant number of people in the Peace Committee, this violated the authority of Scripture. So when we were on the committee to uh, revise the Baptist faith and message, all of that was necessary background. We wanted to help Southern Baptists to adopt a statement of faith, which would affirm the perfection, the total truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture, uh, and would remove, to whatever extent was possible, um, obstacles to uh, that full affirmation. Now, we mentioned one of your committee services with the uh, the Baptist Faith and Message right. Committee. Another one was the Program and Structure Committee that, that That's right. created the Covenant of, for the New Century 20 years ago this year That's as right. well. Uh, so how did the outcome of the Peace Committee affect your work on that committee as well? Well, I would say the Peace Committee had less relevant immediate impact other than the fact that uh, the Peace Committee became a necessary part of the background to how we saw the SBC, what our picture was of the landscape of the SBC. It was, it was a lens. And, and here's, here's what became clear by the time the program and structure committee came along. By that time, you have a rival alternative organization, uh, the uh, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And of course, earlier in that, you had what was called the Alliance of Baptists. And so there was going to be a reshaping of Southern Baptist life. So the Peace Committee uh, was, a necessary preparatory work in this sense. The SBC understood that things had to change, and uh, the SBC in the mid-1990s, looking to the 21st century, said, uh, let's go ahead and uh, and ask some of the hardest questions. We, we paid the price to ask the hardest questions theologically. Now let's ask the hardest questions structurally. Now, finally, you've written that the cost of the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, was unspeakably high, but undeniably necessary. We now find ourselves a generation into a what I would call a, a new SBC uh, with a troubling trend of declining baptisms and membership. What lessons can we take from the conservative resurgence and apply to today to see a resurgence of growth and gospel advance for the future of the SBC? Well, I'll say, first of all, I don't believe there can be any growth, real growth, gospel growth, uh, or any gospel advance that is not consistent with the affirmation of the total truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Word of God. So, um, my reading of the Southern Baptist Convention and its history is that the SBC was self-consciously, intentionally, in terms of its leadership, headed in the direction of the mainline Protestant denominations between the period of 1935 and 1975, right up to the threshold of the Southern Baptist Convention. Several of its institutions and institutional leaders, such as what you had at Southern, and uh, and yet, in many ways, almost all of the major entity heads were really uh, self-consciously following that same kind of trajectory. Uh, they, for instance, uh, you would have Foy Valentine, who was the, the uh, executive director of the Christian Life Commission, now analogous to the president of the ERLC, who argued in, in open that 
evangelical is a Yankee word with which we would not associate. And uh, so they felt much more at home with the uh, leadership of the United Methodist Church and what became the Presbyterian Church USA and all the rest. So the SBC was on a delayed fuse going the same way. And some of those leaders, because I knew them very well, believed that that delayed fuse was due to a residual conservatism that would eventually be overcome with the suburbanization and, and, uh, and sociological changes that would come to the South. And uh, so the SBC was faced during the conservative resurgence years with the question, are we going to be a mainline Protestant denomination just trying to catch up with the Episcopal Church and, and uh, the UCC and all the rest? Or are we an evangelical denomination? And do we find our theological bearings uh, where the SBC was established theologically and, uh, and, and where orthodox classical Protestantism uh, now we would call it evangelicalism is committed. And, uh, again, I don't believe there can be any gospel movement apart from the affirmation of the perfection of scripture. Uh, but that's not enough. So affirming inerrancy is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, we have to press on to obey the scripture that we believe indeed is the inerrant and fallible word of God. And that means obeying all of scripture, including that gospel mandate. So I, I, I do not see a tension between attention to inerrancy and attention to evangelism. Uh, and instead, I think they, they always go together, which is why in evangelicalism, the conversations have always gone together. Uh, but uh, I, I think it, it goes from understanding the Scripture as indeed the Word of God written to obeying it and, and finding a passionate love to want to see Christ preached and uh, to see the nations rejoice. And the only way we know any of that is because we really do believe that God has spoken perfectly uh, to us in Holy Scripture. Just one last question. Southern has uh, 5,500 students, largest seminary in the SBC, grown by leaps and bounds under your leadership. What's next for uh, the school up there? Well, you know, I, I'm very thankful how the Lord has blessed, Jonathan. I, I, I will say the hardest thing uh, in my 25th year of, of leadership is to recognize we have no idea what kind of challenges are going to be thrown at us at, at any given moment. Uh, we're living in an increasingly hostile environment. Uh, students coming to one of our schools, uh, those students have to make a decision bigger than I made when I went to seminary. They have to make a statement far more publicly and emphatically than I did as a seminary stu uh, student in, in 1980. Uh, I greatly respect them and love them all the more for that. But uh, we're about to find out what our seminaries are going to look like when uh, we operate in the midst of a far more radical uh, and aggressive uh, uh, secularism. And, uh, and at the same time, we shouldn't expect that our churches are somehow going to be immune from all these tensions and all these struggles. And so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I, I will simply say this. I'm incredibly happy and thankful for a generation of young Christians I see so committed to the Scripture, so committed to Christ, so committed to the gospel. Um, whether they be many or few is outside of our control, but uh, the fact that we train them and prepare them well, that's our charge. All right. Thank you, Dr. Muller. We appreciate it. Glad to be with you. All right. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, I, every time I have any conversation with Dr. Moeller about, uh, particularly about history um, of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
uh, it's just fascinating. You can sit and listen to him tell stories forever. And uh, I'm I, I'm really excited that we were able to get that. So thanks to Dr. Mahler for that. Yeah. And he mentioned in the interview, he's wanting to write something about the, the Peace Committee. Uh, I'm hoping he will. And we were also talking offline about, you know, possible kind of oral history type stuff from him, maybe some memoir type material just would be phenomenal, fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I can't imagine all the stories that he could tell and, and a lot of the other leaders in the SBC could tell about the conservative resurgence. I mean, we've heard uh, somewhat apocryphal stories uh, at this point uh, about those years from about, you know, 1975 to 1990, right. 95, uh, that 20-year ta- uh, span of, of work that went on. Uh, but it would be great to have some of those, you know, written down for us to, to hold on to and look back on. So thanks again, Dr. Moeller, for your time. And that, that's going to jump us into our news this week. Something that dropped right before we uh, sat down to record this. There, a list of evangelicals have urged more action from President Trump against the alt-right. Uh, yes. Yeah, this just dropped um, today. So it's uh, a story that's at CNN. We also have a link to uh, the the open letter uh, is really what it is. It's a, a letter, uh, as the CNN story says, a letter that's been circulating privately among a coalition of pastors notes um, Trump's efforts to denounce uh, the white supremacists, but urges the president to go further in condemning the alt-right by name. And uh, so this is a, a pretty significant list um, on here as, as it lists in the story, including President Steve Gaines. Yeah, also former President Fred Luter is included, as well as James Merritt, Dr. Russell Moore of the URLC. President Danny Aiken, uh, your boss at Southeastern, as well as your husband, Keith Whitfield, and the provost at Southeastern, uh, Bruce Ashford, are listed among the signatories. Also listed uh, J.D. Greer, Vance Pittman, Walter Strickland, Ed Litton, Jamar Tisby, Ed Stetzer, and K. Marshall Williams. So uh, a kind of a smattering across the, the country of uh, prominent not just Southern Baptists, but also some other evangelical leaders. Yes, uh, Marshall Blaylock as well. And uh, I think there are, uh, we, we're going to have a link in the show notes to this story at CNN, as well as to the open letter itself. And uh, the, the, the page for the open letter has also uh, gotten a few more names that have, have been added in. So uh, I know there may be a delay if, if the story is going to be updated, but another, um, Prominent name is uh, Samuel Rodriguez uh, is on there as well. Who, yeah, he's a member uh, of the a, uh, Trump Advisory Council. Right, right. So I mean, he's he's participating in this. Uh, so we'll you know we'll see uh, what what comes of this. But this is a discussion that's just been kind of lingering through a number of uh, of issues that have happened, obviously beginning in August with the events in Charlottesville, but even going back uh, to the resolution that we passed this summer. So as the conversation continues, it will be interesting to see uh, where this fits in. Yeah. And this conversation also includes uh, the, the letter a couple of weeks ago in Memphis about removing civil war monuments of Nathan Bedford Forrest and, and others in the city. Uh, there's also a story this week out of your area, Amy, over in the Raleigh area. Brent O'Quinn uh, also uh, on a podcast last week talked about uh, some monuments in the North Carolina area. Yeah, so that's a discussion that is happening um, locally already. Our governor has done some, you know, asking the historical commission to move some statues. So it's been kind of a back and forth. And the, I think the discussion has been tabled at the moment. Uh, but in the context of that, um, 
Brent O'Quinn, who is, is uh, he teaches um, American history at our college. He also does, you know, teaches Baptist history, some some other things. He participated in this podcast uh, that is sponsored by our Kingdom Diversity Initiative. He addressed sort of current arguments uh, for continuing to to have these monuments in certain places. So he you know, he advocated pretty strongly uh, for a lot of the monuments to be uh, to be taken down. Although he was careful to say that that uh, some of the ways where some of them have come down, he he didn't agree with with that completely. But it the discussion on the podcast has gotten. Um, a little bit of conversation. And, and so this is just a, a lot is being discussed right now. Yes, it is. And uh, we will obviously be keeping an eye on this and uh, to see what kind of response that we'll see, uh, not just about the Confederate monuments, but the open letter on the alt-right. So a continuing discussion in the Southern Baptist Convention that we've been having for the past couple of years. Amy, before we move over to some news from Arkansas, we got another story related to Southeastern that's unrelated to uh, the the racial tensions and uh, Civil War monuments, and that that's a a new dean of women at Southeastern. Yeah, so uh, Missy Branch, who um, has Lifeway been trustee. yes, and has been uh, part of our community for a while, she's been named assistant dean of students uh, to women. So she's going to be uh, just leading out on what we're calling women around Southeastern, which sort of connects with our um, around Southeastern um, brand, uh, particularly for students on campus. And uh, so it's just the whole connection of all the ways that the women associated with the campus just can come in and and really be a a community. And um, Missy is, uh, her husband is Deuce Branch, who... The um, ambassador. Yes, the ambassador who... Uh, also teaches at the college at Southeastern, and um, they have just a great family. Uh, one of their daughters is a really good friend of uh, of ours, of Mary, and um, does uh, uh, she and Drew are in school plays together and things like that. So they're just a great family. And um, Misty's been uh, doing some stuff with uh, with our student life office for a little while, and she's just phenomenal. I love getting uh, to work with her. So I think this is going to be a great. A uh, great new thing. All right, over to Arkansas. Williams Baptist College is no more. It will be Williams Baptist University. That's a big deal. Yeah, we've seen this uh, with some other Southern Baptist colleges in the past couple of years. Uh, I know just a few years ago, William Carey College down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, was uh, renamed as William Carey University. Truett McConnell also recently went through that transition, moved from Truett McConnell College to Truett McConnell University. So we're seeing that uh, that step up in a lot of these Baptist colleges. That's exciting. You know, when is the first time I ever heard of Williams Baptist College? I do not. Um, it was when uh, I was in college and my brother uh, played baseball and played against uh, Williams Baptist. And we went to the game and it, it, it was a little bit of a trek out there to, yeah. uh, to Walnut Ridge. I'll just leave it there. All right, but it was a beautiful campus, and um, I have uh, memories of, of being there with my family. And so, this is a, an exciting step for them. Yep, I guess it's not unusual that we would uh, congratulate President Tom Jones of Williams Baptist University. Now, and uh, final story, we'll move over to Georgia, and uh, kind of a tragic story here: a Bruton Parker athlete was shot and killed in an off-campus altercation uh, after a party uh, last week. Stevenson Derival. A uh, 20-year-old at Bruton Parker was uh, shot and killed around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Yeah, that's a really difficult story. I saw that pop up. Um, looks like he was on the track and field team. And uh, just 
just really, really sad. And one of the sad things is it talked about so many people were fleeing the scene that it might be difficult to locate, um, to locate the shooter. So right now I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure the campus is just kind of reeling and uh, doing the best they can to deal with this. Um, but definitely our prayers are with that family as well as uh, just the whole campus at Bruton Parker. Yep. And uh, one final story before we move on to this week in SBC history, we wanted to put a button on a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Dr. David Platt uh, was voted in as pastor teacher at McLean Bible Church this past week by the congregation there. So if you've heard us talk about that on the podcast and online, uh, that that did happen this week. So just wanted to put a bow on that story. And that's going to bring us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. All right, we're going to go back to 1980. The year of my birth. Wow. That makes me feel old now. It should. Um, so anyway, uh, we're going to go to a story that was really interesting. It's an ad hoc committee that formed um, a convention-wide videotape network. So uh, this was a group of SBC executives. The committee has no, it had no official convention sanction or authority, but they wanted to increase the use of video cassettes in Southern Baptist churches and associations. So uh, Cecil Ray, who was here at the Baptist State Convention in North Carolina, was chairman of the committee. And um, they, what they wanted to produce was 200 to 500 video programs over the next three years and lead a thousand associations and 10,000 churches to secure video players. So this is like VCR. I'm most fascinated in where they met, Amy. <laughs> yes. Well, it, so the idea started when uh, there were some state execs that were meeting in Anchorage, yeah. Alaska. Can you imagine in 1979 traveling to Anchorage, Alaska, how long that would take? I, I, I really can't. And uh, so then they, they had the idea and then they had an exploration conference at the Baptist Sunday School Board. Um, then the state execs sort of formed this ad hoc committee. So it, it, it sort of just snowballed. And then they were calling for state conventions to contribute uh, nearly a million dollars over the, the next three years. That was about $10 per church. And, um, and then it said, in return for the investment, every convention would receive a copy of every videotape produced by the network. So I think this was supposed to be like training videos, um, just all sorts of stuff. Um, so it, this is very interesting. It says it has down here at the bottom because it's talking about how to purchase all of this. It said prices for a commercial half inch video playback unit and an accompanying color television monitor start at approximately $1,500. Good grief. Yeah. That was and, a lot uh, of money back then. That's a lot of money I, now, but that's a whole lot of money back then. I know. So here's what's fascinating to me about this. Okay. So 1980, that's the year you were born. I was alive in 1980. I was four at this time. I mean, I, I don't think of myself as, uh, you know, having, I don't think of myself as super old. I do. But um, thanks. Appreciate it. But what's fascinating is how quickly things have progressed. I mean, now churches want to have a network of sharing videos. They tweet a video to each other. Yeah. I mean, there's there's entire systems built for video training and stuff for churches. I mean, we have a ministry grid at Lifeway. Yeah, we're doing Facebook Live 
um, videos. Maybe you and I are recording a podcast and we live about 600 miles away from one another. That you're going to um, upload and everyone's going to listen to. It's amazing how quickly we share information now. And then I can look and see that churches were were already, they were, they've been thinking about cooperating and doing this for a long time. And in some ways it all started this week in SBC history, 37 years ago. All right. Now I want to point you to another article in this group of Baptist Press articles because we were talking conservative resurgence earlier with Dr. Moeller. Yes. Bailey Smith has an article in here about whether he will run again or not or, or let Richard Jackson from uh, North Phoenix run or 1981. Yeah, and uh, what's interesting is uh, this is this is really a, uh, covering a meeting with state uh, Baptist editors and Baptist Press representatives and so they asked him all kinds of questions. This is a pretty long article. Um, I, um, go to the link, read about the video network, because that's kind of cool and interesting. But you're right. The article underneath it is just fascinating because it looks like they really pressed him. Yeah, they wanted to know if he was controlled or supported by Pressler Patterson and their efforts to take over the agencies of the SBC. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. It really is. It talks all about, you know, political strategies, things like that. Really, uh, really fascinating. So uh, ch- check out that whole check out that whole issue. It's uh, it, the, it also talks about there's a, a resolution, an executive committee resolution. If you go down the uh, toward the bottom of the issue on doctrinal integrity. So this one, you know, I like seeing these the these little things you know that make references to culture at the time um we talked about the waltons last week this about the video cassette because it just shows uh sort of the progression but these papers from the 80s uh these baptist press issues just tell such a fascinating story because it was as it was happening in the moment you know we have lots of overarching histories that can't possibly cover everything um, but these Baptist press issues really start getting to some of the the discussions. Yep. There's a sad story in here about the Baptist representative to Eastern Europe uh, dying yeah. in a car accident. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out why we don't have a Baptist fraternal representative to Baptists in Eastern Europe today. I would, uh, I'd, I'd apply for that. I think that'd be kind of neat. Well, um, See if Frank Page I, I, can work that out. Yeah, why don't you? You, I'm just never mind. I don't have anything. You don't, I don't have even anything know how to. I don't even know how. I'll just say it was a sad story. We'll see if we can find one for Canada too. How about that? And then. Oh, I love Canada. See, there we go. And that's all yeah, it took. Yeah, I love Canada. So. Yep. Anyway, I'm not sure about Zagreb, Yugoslavia, as the place to be, but and of yeah, course well. Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore. So that's a kind of a throwback in the the BP article here. Right. All right. Well, that's going to move us to our resources of the week. Your resource of the week is? It is a book that is coming out uh, from B&H Academic, and it's going to be released on November 15th. And it is edited by um, Adam Harwood, who is a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and then also Kevin Lawson of Talbot School of Theology uh, at Biola. And it's called Infants and Children in the Church, Five Views on Theology and Ministry. Um, And it it basically addresses uh, how churches should receive and minister to the infants and children God has entrusted to their care. 
so then it, it basically hits on Eastern Orthodox perspective, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, and Baptist perspectives. Very, very interesting. And it's, you know, these five views books are really great. Yeah, I always enjoyed the perspective books. Yeah, because you get to see the different perspectives yeah. and then they respond to each mm-hmm. other. Um, you kind of get to see the overarching agreement, the differences. And when you get into the the theological discussions of this, sometimes you understand sort of why different perspectives uh, or people maybe practice certain things, things you didn't know. You didn't understand the the reason behind or the thinking behind. So these are always really good, uh, good books. But uh, I, I think this is cool. So I, I hope to get this one. Uh, like I said, it's it's coming out in November, but you can go ahead and pre-order it now. So uh, the book announcement is at um, Adam Harwood's website. And now my favorite, I think we've talked about this, my favorite piece of trivia about Dr. Harwood. He is was in Jurassic he, World. Yes, he had an extra part in Jurassic World. So every time I see him, that's what I bring up. Uh, but he also is a, a great contributor uh, as a professor in one of our seminaries as well. So very excited about this. Uh, yep. My favorite um, book on the perspectives was one I had to read when I was at Chriswell getting my master's. And it was on millennialism or amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, you know, the yeah. eschatology. And one of the guys in his response, I think it was the response from, I don't remember if it was the amillennial guy to the postmillennial guy just basically wrote two sentences saying, in in short, this is hogwash. That's it. That was his entire response. It was amazing. I had to go dig that book up and shoot you a picture of that. But it was just, it was funny. It's, so, it's interesting when, when uh, sometimes, yeah, the responses uh, can can get interesting. I, I read a, um, I think it was five views on inerrancy uh, for a class a couple of uh, semesters back. And I, some of them, they were just really fascinating, these responses uh, to one another. So I, I, I like those as well. All right. My resource of the week is a new book from Trillia Newbell, God's Very Good Idea, A True Story of God's Delightfully Different Family. That's talking about how uh, people from all ethnic and social backgrounds are valuable to God and how Jesus came to rescue all kinds of people. Uh, it's a kid's book, beautifully illustrated. So uh, Trulia had a big launch of that, I think, a couple weeks ago at uh, Emmanuel here in uh, town, her and Ray Ortland, uh, and they uh, debuted the book and everything. So you can pick that up. It's it's on sale now. Uh, you know, it's a great little children's book talking about how God loves people from all races, and that, that's a good uh, reminder after uh, some of the stories we've covered today. That's very cool. I've been seeing a lot about that, and uh, I definitely want to get my hands on a copy of that. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this week on the episode. Again, thank you, Dr. Moeller, for uh, your um, for your time, for you know talking peace committee and all things you know Southern Baptist history with us. We appreciate that, and uh, thanks again for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, everybody up at Southern, check them out at sbts.edu and the Billy Graham School in, in particular at sbts.edu/bgs. Got some great interviews still to come. Uh, for you, we've got one with uh, Taffy Hall that Amy conducted a couple of weeks ago while she was in town here at the Southern Baptist Archives. We've got a great one with Jeff Dodge talking about all the stuff that's going on up in Iowa at uh, the Salt Network and how they're uh, really radically changing the way college ministry is done uh, across the Midwest. And uh, I had a chance to sit down with him while he was at the, um, the For the Church conference this past week, and we had a chance to talk some more. And just I'm blown away. Uh, people, you, you've got to... 
you've got to see what's going on up in Iowa with the Salt Network and Jeff Dodge and everybody at Cornerstone. Also, Amy, we uh, we don't have an interview for this one, but I found out about a network of Southern Baptist churches in South Dakota this past week. Met a guy that's kind of running that network. But did you know that we have like a network that is blowing and going and reaching millennials in South Dakota that's Southern Baptist? That's awesome. It is pretty cool. I was pretty blown away by that. So uh, that report, actually, that was the first state convention. The Dakota State Convention was the first one of the year. So we should be getting reports on state conventions starting soon. Very cool. Well, Amy, you have nine marks at Southeastern this weekend. Good luck with all of that. Uh, should be an exciting time. People can stream that. Where can they find that online? They can go to sebts.edu slash streaming. Okay. So if you're interested in catching some of the nine marks at Southeastern Conference on leadership this weekend, you can do that there. Go to the uh, Facebook page for Midwestern to catch all the videos from the For the Church Conference this past week. So you've got the uh, conference this weekend. I'm headed on vacation, and uh, but we'll still have a show next week. We'll figure out the logistics of that because I know you're coming to Nashville for a conference as well, and I'll be out of town. So we'll figure it all out. But until then, we'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>